On today's episode of Animal Fuckery, we are going to be discussing the sharing and how it is absolutely, most definitely a cult. Going to examine exactly how much research I think K.A. Applegate did about cults before writing about it. And then I'm going to tell you that despite all appearances, it is not actually definitely a stand-in for Scientology, but only for one simple reason. As a quick aside, this episode is going to end with some really dark shit, so um, content warning, I'll give you more details when we get there. In Animorphs, the sharing is described as a social organization that is used to recruit willing controllers, humans who will willingly submit to being infested by a yerk. It's described as being kind of a combination male-female adult child boy scouts club but most importantly we get a detailed blow by blow of the creation of the sharing in the side book visor which is told from the perspective of visor one and how she discovered earth decided it would be a good planet for the yerks to try and take over and decided that instead of doing an outright warfare uh, plan of attack she would try the simple insidious way of getting humans to volunteer it all starts when Visor One takes over a host who is explicitly a drug addict. Her name is Jenny Lines, for Christ's sakes. Now, if it's lines of cocaine or track lines, who can say? Either way, uh, she gets a first glimpse at this chemically dependent human and realizes, oh, it is going to be so easy to control this person. Uh, in exchange for not fighting her back for control, she agrees to continue taking the drug that Jenny is addicted to, at which point Jenny really just does not care about that much. She kind of goes along with the infestation. She's not thrilled about it, but she doesn't struggle for control. Uh, because this is one of Visor One's very first impressions of humanity, she kind of gets the idea that all humans are going to be pushovers, and it's really easy to control them if you just offer them what they lack. Now, just a friendly reminder, these books were being published at the height of the war on drugs, and you know, I mean, all preaching that you can give to kids aside, you, you can say drugs are bad, they'll make you lose your life, you'll lose control, everything. Coming at it from the approach of becoming a drug addict will make you susceptible to having your mind taken over by aliens. Like, I have seen worse attempts at indoctrinating kids against drugs. So at the end of the day, these were kids' books. There was a little bit of proselytizing going on. Uh, I've seen far worse is what I'm trying to say. Now, when describing what she was going to create the sharing to be, Visor One says, I studied every cult, movement, and the leader. She then chooses a host who is explicitly charismatic, uh, looks good on the stage, has a strong, booming voice. And she says, there was a lot of high-flown rhetoric touching on the themes humans love to hear. They are special, superior, a chosen few. Their failures in life are all someone else's fault. She goes on to say, the sharing would never be about weak people being led to submit to a stronger will. It would be about family, virtue, righteousness, brotherhood and sisterhood. I would offer people an identity, a place to go. I would give them a new vision of themselves as a part of something larger, erasing their individuality. Now, these are all phrases that, if you listen to various cults, that sounds really familiar. When you remember that in context, she's talking about they will literally erase their individuality because their brain's going to be taken over by aliens, it gets a lot more insidious. So to continue this discussion, I've done a little bit of research about cults. Uh, this is kind of a side interest of mine. 
I have spent a lot of time on YouTube listening to Telltale Atheist, who I highly recommend, along with Genetically Modified Skeptic. Uh, He puts out less content, but whenever he does publish, it is always pure gold. So I've kind of had that little background, but I did do a little bit of research for this episode, and I will put links to my sources uh, in the description. First, we are going to talk about what an ideal victim for cult recruitment looks like. Then we're going to talk about various characters who have fallen victim to the sharing. First is obviously Tom. We have to start with Tom, and I'm going to tell you exactly what known cult recruitment method got him. Then in Megamorphs 4, back to before, there is an alternate timeline, due to Elemis shenanigans, don't worry about it too much, where you get to see what would have happened to the kids if they did not go through the construction site and meet Elfangor. And you get to see what their fate would have been. Tobias's fate, and this is so obvious once you think about it, Tobias joins the sharing as a way to find his belongings, since he doesn't find his belonging with the Animorphs. We also get a little bit of a glimpse into how recruitment is done for the adults in uh, Book 2, The Visitor, for uh, Mr. Chapman and his wife, uh, Melissa's parents, Rachel's friend. The first trait of an ideal cult victim is they're dependent. They have an intense desire to belong, stemming from a lack of self-confidence. Book two doesn't really get too much into how the Chapmans got involved with the sharing. It does say that the wife went first, and then Mr. Chapman followed suit because he was trying to make his wife happy. Just based on housewife stereotypes, I'm ready to believe that in the 90s, she was a housewife, probably didn't have a job, uh, was looking for some meaning, went looking for a community, found the sharing. As for Tobias... Oh yeah, we absolutely know he's desperate for a place to belong. Uh, He kind of feels like he belongs with Jake because Jake did him a favor that one time, but he immediately became like that latch-on that no one really likes, but they tolerate because they don't want to be mean. His family is ridiculously neglectful. He gets shuttled between his aunt and uncle who tolerate for him as long as they can and then just stop pretending. So this desire to belong, absolutely. Sign number one that you're at risk of joining a cult. Number two is unassertiveness, or a reluctance to say no or question authority. Well, the books are aimed at kids, and it makes all of the sense in the world to give kids a story about their assistant principal being evil. Uh, I do think that this actually had a lot to do with why, in-universe, they would go after a junior high or high school principal as a leading cult member. Kids are often terrified to say no to authority or don't have the ability to say no to authority. So that makes it really easy to get the kids in young. It's like the cigarette companies used to say, get them hooked while they're young. And you can see a lot of high control religions doing that these days too. Think of how much pressure is put on children to recruit them young so that they will make a life out of it. Side note, I happen to be recording this on day two of Josh Duggar's trial, so if you want to know where I'm at mentally, that's where. Third is gullibility, uh, a tendency to believe what someone says without really thinking about it. The sharing makes all sorts of grand promises about what its members are going to get out of membership. Uh, They promise happiness, wealth, and status. As Visor One says, I was going to cater to the most fundamental of human weaknesses, the need to belong, the fear of loneliness, the hunger to be special. The, the propaganda is, if you join the sharing, you will be special. You will be better than everyone else. You will be part of something bigger than yourself. If anyone's making you promises that big, it's, it's in everyone's best interest to doubt them. 
no one and nothing can deliver on something that big so completely without insane drawbacks. And oh man, are the drawbacks of joining the, joining the sharing quite severe. Another trait necessary to be an ideal victim for a cult is to have naive idealism, a blind belief that everyone is good. Uh, there's scenes in these books where someone goes into the back room of the sharing, are put in handcuffs, and are told, we are going to stick this slug in your brain. And they are still able to delude themselves saying, yes, this is, this is going to be fine. I trust these people. They would not do me harm. And it takes an incredible amount of loneliness and an incredible amount of naivety to fall for something like this. I personally call this phenomenon the it-cannot-possibly-be-that-bad syndrome. Somewhere around, oh, say, November of 2016, I started noticing there were a lot of people in my life who were the absolute sweetest people. Not an evil bone in their body, a g gentle and loving and caring and yet they were following certain politics that were openly bragging about just being monstrous. And I finally realized it was because these people were so sweet, so pure, so good, they could not possibly conceive that anyone could be that evil. They could not wrap their mind around it, so they just didn't. So they told themselves that the rest of the world was as sweet and good and pure as them. And that's how the cognitive dissonance just seemed to not happen. Anyways, moving right along from that rabbit hole, uh, we're going to talk about common methods of recruitment. Uh, first of all is picking the right target, which is everything ju I just listed above. Uh, but one other thing is it helps to pick someone who is in a heightened state of stress. Uh, if their life is falling apart, if they are looking for some sort of lifeline, if you come in and say, I can get rid of all of your problems, if you have someone with a lot of problems, that's going to be very attractive and they may be willing to pay a huge, huge price, whether it be personally or sometimes financially, if you really want to talk about Scientology, which we're getting to that. We're getting to that. Not there yet. The next big method is love bombing. A cult will surround you with a community that offers you instant welcoming, instant positive reinforcement all the time. And this is exactly how they get Tobias. Tobias is getting beaten up by bullies at school, and a group of people that he's met like a handful of times at the sharing doesn't even know their names. They come in, intervene, save him, do not even bother to stick around to wait for a thank you. They just let their actions leave an impression make Tobias go, oh man, these people are wonderful. They just completely saved my hide. And Tobias is ready to sign up basically immediately. Uh, while he's hanging out, he's uh, someone's teaching him how to play pool. He's not doing great, but the person says, oh, you're a natural anyways. And I mean, yeah, he does learn pretty quickly. But just the instant flattery, the, the instant acceptance, the surrounding that is so common with cults. I mean, if you listen to anyone who has escaped a cult, there's lots of people on YouTube and lots of people on TikTok all over the place on the internet. They will talk about their experiences, and you hear that a lot. Another common method is isolating the target. Uh, you can do this by instilling doubt in them about anyone else and make them believe, oh, we're the only ones you can trust. But another way the sharing does this is they recruit whole families at once, like the Chapmans. 
That way, all of your closest people are already inside too. Uh, there's no one left for you to reach out to. And sure enough, once Melissa's parents are taken over, Melissa starts self-isolating herself. Uh, Rachel is begging her to open up, and Melissa just doesn't. So Melissa hasn't even been infested yet, and she is self-isolating from everyone else because she doesn't want to be called crazy. She doesn't want to explain why she gets this sense that her parents don't love her anymore. Speaking of the Chapmans, let's not forget the nice old age-old tactic of outright threats. Uh, Mr. Chapman joins the sharing and becomes a controller because he's told, if you do not do this, we will go after your daughter instead. Now, this is a little bit more overtly evil. Uh, any cults that do this, they usually try to save it more for end-stage members, people who have already been in for a while and are trying to leave. But Mr. Chapman wants to stay connected to his wife, so he starts entertaining the idea of joining the sharing and therefore becoming a controller. And then when he finds out the truth of it, he tries to back out, and he says, you can't, because if you do, we'll go after your daughter. Mr. Chapman even though he's an assistant principal and assistant principals are supposed to be evil in all children's literature, acts from a place of love every time. And just in case your heart isn't already thoroughly broken by this, please remember, the sharing is advertising itself as having a mission statement. It would be about family, virtue, righteousness, brotherhood, and sisterhood. Mr. Chapman is embodying those ideals and the organization that is supposed to cherish these ideals is betraying him and his family for it. It is his love that kept him sane and kept him immune to falling for the sharing, and it is his love that is used against him to make him go along with it anyways. And if that's not one of the most insidious things you've ever heard, oh man. Now another method that's often used is peer pressure, or shunning, or shaming someone for not joining you, or basically saying something that boils down to, I would love you more if you came with me into this project. Tom Zurich tries this on Jake in the Megamorphs alternative timeline. After months of Tom withdrawing and Jake missing hanging out with his brother, suddenly Tom starts showing an interest in him again, and Jake is willing to tag along to events with the sharing for a chance to reconnect with his brother. But Jake's not buying it. He is too independent. He's not lost enough in the world for the sharing to really be offering him anything. And that brings me to how Tom was infested. Tom was the same as Jake. He had, he had nothing that was making him susceptible to joining a cult or being infested by aliens. And that brings us to the concept of friendship evangelism. If you've spent any time around evangelists of any sort from any cult community, what have you, they will say it is your duty and responsibility to get those you love to join us, because if you don't, they're going to burn in hell for all eternity. This leads to a very common recruitment technique being forming friendships with strangers, letting those friendships grow, and then a few months down the line flipping the script and say, hey, come with me to my book club tonight. That's what happened to Tom. He was interested in a, in a hot chick. Hot chick invited him to the sharing. Uh, he got it in his head that she was in some back room cheating on him with someone else, so he busted into the room, saw Visor 3 in full Andalite form, at which point he was forcibly restrained and infested. So Tom never volunteered for this, and for Jake's own sanity, I think that is a wonderful, wonderful detail to have in the series. 
In addition to friendship evangelism, there is a hobby evangelism. Um, the sharing does this a little bit with their uh, just fun activity days. I mean, in books one or two, I can't remember which, they have a fun day at the beach with volleyball and a bonfire. You just get everyone relaxed, happy, having fun, and then boom, propaganda. Somewhat related to this is a publicly volunteering. Uh, this is a really powerful when people uh, go do Habitat for Humanity or volunteer at a food bank or a soup kitchen or some such. You go out there with your logos emblazoned. Everyone sees you doing good works. That's the least insidious form of that. Like I can, I can live with that. If a church wants to get together and volunteer at a soup kitchen and wear the name of their church on their shirt, I actually don't really have an issue with that. What I do have an issue with is when they say, in order to eat, you have to pray before we give you the food. This is a thing that happens. It's kind of objectively evil. And the sharing does this by building a community center that offers services to the community, to the disadvantages, gets them in their grasp, and then the center happens to be very conveniently built right over a yerk pool. So given all of these fairly well-documented methods of identifying potential victims, recruiting the victims, and then retaining the victims, and because K.A. Applegate has publicly said, oh, I love doing research, as if we didn't know with all the research she did for each species of animal that she has the kids morph into, I mean, we know, you're, you're a researcher, we get it, you've done great work, we're they're very grateful. It, there is no way that K.A. Applegate did not research cults. She even says so, using Visor One's voice. I studied every cult, movement, and leader, she says, right there in the text of the books. It's time for the Scientology discussion. So, I don't know if K.A. Applegate was living in California while she was writing these books. I know she has lived in California for a significant period of her life, and I do know that at the end of the series, they reveal it was all in California. This is actually kind of really easy to deduce uh, if you read Visor, because in Visor, she decides to go to L.A. based on reading radio signals from space and notices there's a lot of chatter coming out of this place called Hollywood because they're producing umpteen metric fucktons of media all the time. So based on the media signals alone and not knowing enough about Earth culture, she goes to Hollywood. And then she gets the idea for the sharing. And then, I swear to God, this is a direct quote from the book. Okay, not direct. I didn't write it down. She says, I moved away from Hollywood to start the sharing so there was less competition with similar movements in the area. It was still on the coast, but I moved away from Hollywood. In addition... When Tobias is being recruited by the sharing, he goes to his first meeting, they ask him for his social security number, and then ask a bunch of intrusive personal questions all on day one, exactly like Thetan screening from Scientology. So if K.A. Applegate was living in California, the sharing idea had to move away from Hollywood so there was less competition, we, we know Scientology is just rampant in LA and Hollywood. Like, this is, this is fact. If Kay Applegate was living in California, she would have seen it. Keep in mind, Scientology was invented by a sci-fi author. So you really mean to tell me that Kay was not familiar with the works of L. Ron Hubbard? Come on. So 
The sharing is not an explicit stand-in for Scientology, only because, in-universe, the sharing was in competition with Scientology. I have nothing to go on other than the facts I told you, but there is no doubt in my mind this was intentional. Everything I know about this author, her background, her writing style, her tendency to make sneaky allusions left and right, I simply cannot be convinced otherwise. Even if K.A. herself comes out and denies it, I would assume she was doing so to avoid being doxxed by the Scientologists. That's how certain I am. Now, there is one notable difference between the sharing and the real-life cults, and that is real-life cults don't actually have brain-controlling slugs to stick inside people's heads. So for this, I want to discuss what's called the bite model, which is a method of examining organizations to see if they have crossed the line from being normal into being a cult. It is entirely possible for churches, clubs, movements, and other such groups to not be cults, but if your spidey senses are picking up red flags, this is a decent way to do a sanity check. Bite stands for behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotion control. So going down the list... Do the Yerks control behavior? Absolutely. You cannot so much as scratch your nose when you are infested with a Yerk. Information control. Uh, the sharing absolutely does limit information to people before they offer full recruitment. They say, we're going to put this brain-controlling slug in your uh, mind, or they say, we're going to offer you so much purpose and make you part of something bigger than yourself. But they leave out the part where they're planning on destroying all of Earth. Thought control. They try this, and in many ways they succeed, but they don't completely, because as we know, anyone who's infested with the Yark is still able to think their own thoughts. They are a prisoner of their mind. They can't do anything with those thoughts except for occasionally argue with uh, their Yark in their mind. So the thought control, yeah, not quite, but the sharing definitely does try to do that. And the Yerks, what if they could? And they at least try to suppress thoughts. Now, emotion control. This is a little bit uh, definitely in the case of the sharing because they are trying to nullify all of the negative emotions that their potential victims have and trying to provide a salve for it. They're basically just trying to make the pain go away in exchange for literally people's souls. As far as emotion control... Uh, if a host is getting antsy and getting worked up, they can sometimes fight back against the Yerks. And man, the Yerks do not want this to happen. So they are actively suppressing the control and the emotions of their hosts all day, every day, fighting for dominance. Uh, so even just on the most basic is-it-a-cult measuring scale, yeah, of course the Yerks are off the charts. Uh, behavior, information, thought, emotion, that is the horror of being infested with a Yerk. That is 90% of this series. Now I have one last thought I want to share with you today, and this one is really dark. Uh, it revolves the concept of consent, so if you have a reason to not be listening to a really dark thought wave about this topic, now's your chance to run. Something that I never understood when I was a child reading these books is the Yerks were so insistent on getting hosts that agreed to being infested before they knew the full extent of everything that was going to happen to them. And even though the second the infestation occurs, the hosts now know everything, they can see what is actually the truth of it, even after they learned the truth, the ones that initially volunteered to the sharing 
fight back less, even after they learn the truth. They rattle off statistics about it in Visor of, oh yeah, uh, voluntary hosts uh, rebel and seize control of their bodies again 56% less time than ones that were taken forcefully or something like that. And the conclusion that I just noticed this week, rereading and reviewing this as an adult, is because they kind of sort of agreed, even though their consent was manipulated with lies. They did technically once consent. And the guilt of offering that consent, whether it was freely given or knowingly given or not, that guilt makes the hosts weaker to fight back. And if that does not just scare the hell out of you, if you think about it from a consent standpoint, a sexual assault standpoint, a abuse standpoint of any kind, of why did you stay with him? Why didn't you fight back harder? I'm not doing so great with this realization, and uh, now those of you who stayed can join me in this not so great. So anyways, I said I was starting this podcast because this series was dark and I had a whole bunch of really dark fucked up shit, and I'm shocked I read it from ages 8 to 10. In hindsight, no, I absolutely don't think any 8 or 10 year old would pick up on that nuance. But there are some heavy, heavy concepts in these books. Kay Appledate did a fantastic job of just filling these things to the brim with really important topics. I'm 31 years old. Uh, it has been over 20 years since these books stopped being published. I'm still just mind-bogglingly impressed. Uh, so sorry to end on a downer, but this is Animorphs after all, so that's... Ending on a downer is kind of its entire brand. Despite ending on this massive downer, I hope you enjoyed listening, I hope you learned something, and I will put links to some of my resources in the description. Happy trails!